The following discussions are a further look into director Thomas W. Arlington and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the Wind Door. Let's move to a less emotionally intense note. I, I would once, agree that's a good idea. I think we've mined out that particular vein as far as it's going to go. This chapter is full of small, fascinating details, and I'd like to start discussing some of those. Hmm. It's revealed, something that was only alluded to in previous chapters, that Sarah's original name, her slave name, so to speak, was the Sookie that Roach used earlier. We already know that Thomas chose a new surname on acquiring his freedom. That was a specific point in some of those early chapters. But in this, we find out that even Sarah's given name was picked out to replace what was there. And honestly, we should have guessed that. It's one of the more memorable moments from the old movie Roots that Kunta Kunte's old name is taken from him and replaced with an American name. For all we know, Thomas isn't his original name any more than Arlington was. It's just that, in the book, Frank remarks on the latter and not the former. Because the name change is remarked on, it naturally made us wonder on the meaning behind said name. We already know, either from Alex's mouth or strong synchronistic supposition, that many of the names he chose for New Century do have meaning behind them. So I took a few short moments to research the name Sarah to see if it had any hidden meaning. It feels heartwarmingly appropriate that the name means joy in Arabic and a woman of high rank in Hebrew. Both of these terms we can easily see associated with Sarah, it's also the name of Abraham's wife, referenced in Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And by extrapolation, one might wonder about intended or unintended symbology there in regards to Thomas. He himself is trying to spearhead a new covenant, not with God, but with America. Well, I'm always going to be happy to hear more about the meaning and significance behind a name as wonderful as Sarah now, aren't I? <laughs> yes, yes. Mm. Hearing Sarah talk about her old name being one she never had much attachment to feels very understandable, and I would be inclined towards thinking that she would have picked it out for herself rather than Thomas suggesting it. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right that with that revelation of that particular detail, it feels like just as Thomas made the choice to change his family name, she mm. would make a choice in redefining herself and rebuilding herself away from mm. captivity. Mm. I don't necessarily know that she picked it out for any of the reasons we just suggested, but then again, considering 
how we know she voraciously takes in books, takes in mm. knowledge the same way Thomas does. She wrote better than Thomas. That's yeah. like, that's something that a key detail of the story they relate. So mm -hmm. it absolutely scans. And we know Sarah Arlington. We've seen her talk and have conversations. If you're asking me, did Sarah like put thought into her name? Oh yeah, she absolutely <laughs> put thought into her name. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah, but I also feel like she is more likely to be humble about these kinds of things. Therefore, she may have been aware of some of the definitions and some of the references, but she's not the kind of person that would pick a name specifically in order to put on airs or anything like that. And here, here I have to call myself on the carpet a bit because I worry that might come across as a little patronizing. Above and beyond the hatred of black people in general is the far less addressed idea that we like a minority as long as they are the right kind of representation of said minority. In the modern era, you might have heard of the idea of respectability politics, where people of all races, but black people especially, feel like they have to be the best representation of themselves in order to keep the respect of white people. I first learned about this idea all the way back in the 90s, when Jodie Langdon in the TV show Daria talked about the fact that she's supposed to be the role model for all the other African-American teens at Lawndale High, before literally hanging a lampshade on the fact that she is the only black girl at Lawndale High. But even with that, it took a while for me to realize that for most of my adult life, there were a lot of white people that were only respectful of black people as long as they were funny, humble, or being shown as suffering at the hands of the bad white people to be saved by the good white people. The point is, is that I feel like I want to walk back what I associated with Sarah Arlington a moment ago. If she wants to pick a name that declares her worthiness, her value, a name that asserts that she is worth far more than she was ever given until she won her freedom with Thomas's help, then I'm sure not going to suggest that she is asking for more than she is owed. During our original conversation, Toby did help bring me around to that very idea, that she chose the name as a statement of principle. But I decided to replace that with this far more elaborate explanation, because I don't want it to sound like I won't hold myself to account when I make a white-ass mistake. It's a proclamation of self-worth. Mm, mm. It's a political statement. <laughs> <laughs> a political statement in Arlington. How very dare, yes, this is the eighth time we've made that joke. <laughs> Among several of the other details that this chapter reveals, it's so small at first, that even though I had seen the picture that Antonio Torreson did of Sarah so many different times, and I'd even seen the gloves referenced in the text of Arlington, it never occurred to me that there was a practical reason for her wearing these things as she takes them off to reveal the nettle scars from her work in the fields and everything mm. like that. So yeah, that, I've forgotten that detail. Mm -hmm. And mm. on top of that, 
since I started by like, okay, what does the name Sarah mean? Let me pick into every single little detail of this story to mine it for content. I ended up traveling down another path in regards to Captain Pierce, the member of the army that Thomas indicates is a close friend of his. I looked up the name. There was a Captain Henry Pierce that fought Mm -hmm. in the Civil War and went on to be the Massachusetts Secretary of the Commonwealth. I don't know if this was an intended reference because the unit the historical Captain Pierce belonged to was the 23rd Volunteer Infantry of Massachusetts. And going back, all the way back to the cartographer's handbook, Thomas's established regiment was the 7th Volunteer Infantry of Illinois. Obviously, this is alternate history, so who knows? I know how much... Alex loves to dig things up and, you know, mix around and put the pieces in different places. But it was an intriguing enough detail that I decided to include it here. The bigger thing, the more, like, thing that, like, made me hit my own head in terms of having missed it the first couple of times that I read the book, was the fact that Thomas decides to share this book of poetry with Sarah, specifically the poetry of William Blake. Blake being the creator of the famous tiger poem mentioned all the way back at the beginning of Tiger's Eye. I can't figure out what other poems might have been in the book that Thomas shared. The only published work that I can find specifically titled The Poetry of William Blake was published in 1958. But there are many poems still known today that were part of his first published work all the way back in 1793. So the book mm. they read from might have included The Tiger, um, as well as other known works like The Clod and the Pebble, which mm. I thoroughly enjoyed reading because it was an intriguing commentary on toxic love versus non-toxic love, selfless love versus selfish love. Uh, ahead of its time. Yeah, exactly so. Uh, and more than that, I will leave for the audience to learn or... Perhaps more accurately, I will leave for Toby to tell you, since he did his own little bit of digging into William Blake. But (laughs) let's just say that, in general, he is a fascinating individual that I find myself wanting to know more about just from my little bit of research. So, Mm. Toby, why don't you get into your little bit of research that you did? This is Poets of New Century with Toby Scales Jungius. So I do like the connection between Tiger's Eye and this scene, which is emphasized in the audio version with the faint sound of Frau reading the opening line, which Mm. was, of course, what preceded the text in that book. It adds to the gentle, elemental intimacy of what they shared that night, putting your mind in Rama and the jungles and everything like that. And Mm -hmm. it feels like what Sarah and Thomas shared was something where if Rama is this place of like just nature at -hmm. least then what thomas and sarah shared was getting away from all the bullshit of like 19th century american society as for the relevance of william blake which is what i'm here for hand on heart it has been a long time since i did any studying on his works and even then it was mostly on the tiger so it's difficult for me to speculate on which specific poems thomas and sarah would have drawn great meaning from 
However, reading up on Blake, some of the ways he is talked about and summarised feel very applicable to the Arlingtons. While he was a dedicated Christian, he was critical of and hostile to the Church of England, as well as most forms of organised religion, and he was influenced by the ideals of the French and American revolutions early on in his life. The way William Michael Rossetti, a 19th century scholar, described Blake as a man not forestalled by predecessors, nor to be classed with contemporaries, nor to be replaced by known or readily surmisable successors, feels especially relevant to the Arlingtons, as they, as leaders, are also singular when compared against those who have preceded them. And, as has been apparent from the text of this book, they stand apart from many of their contemporaries. And, lest we forget, this book began with the ominous words about this being the story of how Arlington died, which makes us fearful of the lack of successors who can match their ideals and abilities. Hmm. There are... Based on some of the things you said and my own thoughts in regards to this chapter, there are thoughts that we're going to get into only after the book is done. Do we need um, another jar to get, put pennies into whenever we say we're going to have to get into this in the summary? I mean, in theory, we should have been filling that jar a long time ago because we've been doing that all the way since the beginning. Also, what are we going to do? Okay, so yes, we have we have enough pennies to buy ourselves... A sandwich. <laughs> it would yeah, be a nice sandwich. It wouldn't be like one of those like sort of meal deal like basic things. It would be like yeah, go right. to your local uh, like favorite place, get yourself what Holly gets at the start of Birds of Prey. You know. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. A good sandwich is a joy forever, or really, mm. it's it's a joy until you finish eating it. Anyway. Um, mm. Or it gets stolen from you, and in which case it's the real tragedy of the day. Yeah, exactly. I'm just going to have to remember to come back to this, as well as a couple other thoughts that I had in regards to Blake, and honestly, a few other new century-specific stuff before discussing any of this further. But it also sets us up just the catharsis of revealing this story for, okay, we've shared our deepest, darkest secret. Now it's time to get up off the mattress and start doing the hard work. That's what this chapter leaves us feeling, and mm. that's why it partly feels so energizing to mm. actually get back into the action and start punching back at mm. all these forces that are causing such pain and strife. Okay, so I just suddenly was thinking, wait a minute, they're underground They when they have this sort of real, like... Oh, holy shit, you're talking is about... This, is yeah. this the return from the descent into the underworld? Yes! Is it? Yes, yeah. it is. <laughs> it absolutely is. <laughs> oh boy, I I had to like I was just like hang on, and I like I was just sort of looking up some things like, huh? It kind of feels like it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it kind <laughs> of does. You know, Alex. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we even used the word descent 
in mm. regards to the previous three chapters. So we kind of already knew this. And again, forest, trees, all that good stuff. So you know what have... this is? We're like the players around the table, and Alex is the DM, just sort of gleefully like laying these <laughs> traps. And like we keep walking into them and go, yeah. like, oh. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Why do I always sort of make it like this, oh, like he can't keep getting away with this. This is all good stuff. Like, I'm glad this is here. He takes pleasure in us finding all the little breadcrumbs all around, and we take pleasure in having found them. It's a system that naturally feeds itself. There's absolutely nothing wrong with this. It's (laughs) honestly just the fact that sometimes... It takes us so long to actually get there that by the time we do, we're like, I feel like such a fool for not having Mm -hmm. noticed this sooner. But that's why this process Mm -hmm. is important. We're unable to notice these things on our own. We need to have the conversation. We need to actually physically fit the pieces together before we suddenly realize the picture that we're looking at. Look, sometimes you need the spots that come out, and the only way to do that is to bang a couple of heads together. Mm-hmm. Mm. Chapter 21. Hey, we finally got beyond the chapter 20. Yeah, well, I mean, again, as so often seems to happen during our conversations, we spend a good portion of the beginning talking about the meta of any given part of the story rather than events in the chapters itself. But mm. yes... Now, we've, we've managed to move along at something of a uh, sturdy clip here. Here is where we're starting to get into some of the action that we were referring to uh, way back at the beginning of this conversation. But because there isn't as much to say about simple action beats or anything like that, the one thing that did stand out to me as noteworthy, particularly in regards to the amount of time we spent discussing the relationship between... Lee and Frank is this tiny moment as the two of them are working together in order to prevent ambush by the Wendigo and get their charges to safety. She reaches out to him during a quiet moment and offers a measure of empathy, acknowledging the tension between the two of them for the first time in that Mm. she's, she understands that there is tension between the two of them and sharing with him the reason for her own manner and the, as a result, clumsiness of any kind of social interaction between them, mentioning the death of her husband, and sort of saying without actually putting it into these words, she didn't take into account that he would have a different reaction to his past as she towards hers. It's a brief moment, but it means the world and is briefly referenced once more when Lee says the reason she was not hurt by the Wendigo is that she has had her mind in the present. We see in her that her coping mechanisms keep her alive, and that has to be enough, even though it damaged her relationship with Frank without intending to. It's just that in this moment, this new moment, they need to be able to trust each other. And so Lee shows a little bit of her vulnerable underbelly in order to begin 
that healing process. Mm. Her decision to share this and mend some of the tension between her and Frank before engaging the Wendigo is telling. She is about to rely on Frank, and it appears that she knows that her words before got in the way of them being able to rely on and trust one another. That's not to suggest that she's being insincere with her empathy and apology here, because her words really do show consideration and openness, which mends the gap between them somewhat. It adds to her point that she carries forward by keeping her mind in the present. Yes, she has to revisit the past in that she both shares her own loss and is mending a past mistake that she made with Frank. But it's because she knows what is needed right here, right now, with the task ahead of them. She is aware of the practical requirements, but also the emotional needs of those around her and of herself to achieve what must be done, while still dropping her philosophy enough to connect with someone else at the same time as accomplishing her next task. It's odd how being emotional can also serve a practical need, mm. or at the very least that you can you can manage to find a compromise between the two and still manage to make that work. Mm. She is um, being she is being as honest as she can let herself be because mm. in some ways if she lets herself be too vulnerable then that gets in the way of whatever comes next. So she yes, she reaches out just enough to be mm. like I know this is a thing, here's the reason why the commonality of our experience will maybe make a difference in what comes next. But I need to let you know that I am not just a weapon for Thomas. Mm -hmm. I am a person as well. And that mm -hmm. we can somehow connect on that level because she understands how much connecting is important to Frank. Mm. Precisely. And she's not necessarily like apologizing she is not saying like what i did was wrong she is being understanding mm. and she as you say she explains because as you say she has to move ahead with assurity because she has to be decisive in what comes next and that means that by doing this by saying this to frank and speaking with him she has to say her words with assurity. And that means that she says, this is who I am and this is what I do and it's why I do it. I acknowledge that not everyone is like that and I understand and see you for that. It's a way of offering reconciliation or at least being self-aware enough to acknowledge the other person's feelings on the matter without necessarily saying the words I am sorry for the mistake I did with you. It's very nuanced in that way and after she rushes out and deals with the Wendigo and they do work together on it, there's a point where Frank says You were lucky. I had my mind in the present. They're not necessarily now like the best of friends, the best of companions, they are still out of sync somewhat, but 
she moved ahead confident that the gesture she just did was enough to form a connection that what she was about to do he would have her back on she was proven right on that and so that's the characterization of her that she is not just a weapon but she is someone who has an awareness of her surroundings and that does include the people around her as much as it includes the threats and tasks at hand we can only speculate on her motivations Mm. to a certain degree or at the very least based on what we know of her now she's Mm. had a lot more time to be characterized in some of the future books which we have not talked about yet Mm. but one also has to wonder in all of this if the reason why she was able to be present in the moment is because she shared what she did with frank that she got it out of the way and that helped her to focus as well as to engender rapport with Frank. I also notice we, we call him Frank a lot more instead of Butler. I don't know when that change huh. happened, but yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. I guess, like, uh, I can't really uh, describe what that is. I guess, like, there, there's certain characters who you refer to there, like, in the text of New Century, Butler is uh, often described as Butler. But I guess because what we do is we're often talking about like we're making personal inferences about these characters and because he's someone we are endeared to and because he's someone we've made a lot of comments of i guess we end up discussing this interpretation of the historical figure of frank butler Mm. in a sort of way like that you would discuss a friend and sometimes it can be just a bit hard for me to refer to a friend by their surname sometimes that's exactly what i've called them all all the time of our relationship but sometimes you just evolve what you say because it would be weird to switch you know after a while wouldn't it downing yeah no it doesn't work (laughs) Mm. i I don't i don't buy it (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) I, i don't even know i i have I feel weird whenever anyone would attempt to use my full name to begin with, and mm. Maureen loves teasing me about that relentlessly. She'll sometimes use my entire name like she's some school teacher bringing me to task or something like that. But Lovely. yeah, on top of that, like I pointed out specifically with Frank, because in the case of Thomas, I've just sort of gotten in the habit of referring to him as Thomas, not for the same reasons that I refer to Frank as Frank, but because there are too many Arlingtons in this story. Yeah, like, so therefore I need to use the given name well, in order we say to make Arling- sure. We say Arlington and four characters go, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the most significant parts of the next couple of chapters give us fresh insights into Harry Arlington, into Mm. her own particular growth outside of her work with Steamheart. These moments, this crisis that she's heading into, as horrible as it is, gives her an opportunity to participate in the world in spite of the damage others fear will do to her. Mm. And we understand not only that it's necessary for her to progress, 
But we also see some of that Arlington fire in her. Oh, do we? <laughs> well, just her line of, I am driving here is her own, and yet I can't help but associate with it a fairly famous movie quote that has been referenced and parodied many times over. She gets to stand up to her father more than once. The line about Thomas telling Harry to run down anyone gets in the way feels a little squidgy after that very thing happening with Black Lives Matter protests. Obviously, it happened in the other direction, but still, the idea of a car doing violence in the case of a riot just it feels a little bit problematic in general in relation to the uh, stuff that happened in Charlottesville. I don't want to get too hung up on that, so I'm moving quickly on along the way. The point is that she stands firm about not wanting to do that, and Thomas, of course, clarifies that he thinks they would get out of the way if it seemed like she'd be willing to do it. So it's not as much of an issue as it could be. More significantly, in regards to her standing up for herself, is when she orders Thomas out of Steamheart when she worries about the craft being overrun. And we're glad to see Thomas actually listening to someone else for once. Mm. It's important to Harry's growth and to the audience's engagement with her as a character that we move past the idea of treating her delicately and viewing her as fragile. Yes, her voice is endearingly tender and we know how she processes the world both external and internal but she wants to participate and affect change through her involvement and contributions not just as the provider of this invention but as the most suited person to drive it that means risk same as it does to every other participant in this story and the ongoing saga of new century And while Harry is affected by what she sees and is quite literally shaken by it, her readiness to act, to assert and to challenge establishes early on that she is a hero and one we should be thankful to have on the front lines, even if, like Thomas, we do worry for her safety. She is, in theory, in the safest place that she could possibly be behind Mm. the wheel of Steamheart, which she knows like Mm. no one else does. Mm. And when I was discussing this with Maureen, she specifically pointed out that Harry feels confident in this place of her own making because it Mm. is in some ways her safe space, her Mm. cocoon, one might say, if to Mm. follow along with some of the earlier commentary on this being a moment of growth for her. This is a place that feels... Oh, very good. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is a place that feels the most like home because she made it. And I won't go too far beyond those words because obviously when you start bringing up cocoon, although in this case the word chrysalis might be more accurate, in regards to Harry, in regards to what we know of her future in the story of New Century. Yeah, let's let's sort of uh, keep things uh, (laughs) hush-hush. I mean, you know, we've already talked about the fact that she's going to become an important player later on, but Mm. there are going to be potentially people out there that will be listening to this that have not 
listened to Steamheart that have not listened to anything that happens at later on. So let's continue to keep this as accessible yeah. as possible. Mm-hmm. Alex has snipers on our position at all times. <laughs> oh, great. So now I have to worry about Steed and Layton again, huh? Well, it's silent company. You know, we just got to be careful with this. Like, anyway, I I was about to say a point and then realized that I was uh, jumping ahead somewhat. So, sorry, carry on. No, it's all right. Um, the only other thing that I want to say specifically about this moment is just the way that chapter 21 ends. First of all, it's got this hilarious moment where she's, you know, trying to take Steamheart out. And mm. in the audio drama itself, we hear a record scratch as she screws up the first attempt to put Steamheart in motion. And that's very reminiscent of Will Smith trying to fly the alien craft in Independence Day. My head was taking me to that bit in Wallace and Gromit at Grand Day Out when the rocket ignites. And there's a period of where the whole house and the whole building is shaking, but the rocket isn't taking off. Gromit furrows his brow, snaps his fingers in realization, Releases the handbrake and the rocket shoots immediately off into the sky. <laughs> I need to get back to watching more Walls and Gromit because obviously this is an important touchstone for you, and I want to mm. be able to properly work with the same uh, mythology that is, is instrumental <laughs> to your experience and everything. The mythology of Wallace and Gromit, absolutely. I mean, you know, it all it, it all comes from somewhere. I will say that like there will be just little things in it that you're like, Toby makes so much sense now. Like, just <laughs> not that like what he says makes sense, just like the way he is makes sense now. Yeah, yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, but on top of that, as Steamheart is coming to life and we're hearing the music in the background that has a like a significant guitar component to be like, mm. yeah, go, go, go. Just just very almost 80s, 90s action movie-ish going on there. There is something entirely amusing in the idea that Harry is, quote unquote, the first woman driver ever. And two men that have not driven because they couldn't have are still telling her how to drive. What with, you know, Frank being like, yeah, you got to do this. And Thomas being like, check mirrors and everything like this. And she's just like, will you, will you hush? You don't know what you're talking about. This is my craft. I'm going to drive. Yeah. It, just let Harry drive, damn it. <laughs> with everything that else is going on, this is once more uh, a significant moment about why I qualify these chapters as part of the rally theme in terms mm. of it, it, it makes us feel like they're on the right path mm. and that they are going to succeed despite everything around them seemingly going to oh. hell in a handbasket. Because because Steamheart becomes a literal rallying point. Mm, mm, yeah, that's a mm. good point, actually. Yeah. Mm. Over the course of the final chapter, and more specifically, as Alex was remastering the Arlington audio drama, he mentioned more than once that he decided to go and edit some of the content of General Curtis's speech making, both during the first moment 
in the streets and then later on uh, in the proper of the capital itself. He wrote the story back in 2015 and felt that the arguments being made by Curtis were a little too conciliatory for this day and age, a little bit too, you know, both sides, or at the very least, not specific enough in terms of the ideals and the message that he wanted to provide through his writing. It's been six years since the book came out, and yet in many ways it's felt even longer than that. In part because it also feels like we know so much more than we used to about the division between groups of Americans, left, right, and center. We are less naive, we know better, and that means we want to do better. The old ways don't work, if they ever did. So we want to go forwards armed with that hard-won knowledge. He wanted the words he used for posterity to be more reflective of what he himself actually believes, and obviously beliefs do change over time. That component was a part of some of our conversations last time around in terms of the things that you know to be right change as you learn more and do better. It just got to a point in his own head where he was like, this is not properly indicative. This feels naive in retrospect. So during the remaster, he took out certain parts or changed certain parts. And more specifically, the text that was added in place of other things that Curtis said, our White House is in danger from groups that don't seek to reinforce those rights for the people. They don't want democracy. They just want to tear everything down. They gain great satisfaction when we fight amongst ourselves and their grip on power tightens. Those among you who are expressing your outrage today have every right to expect a system that treats you fairly. And that's not what we have. That needs to change. The new text is definitely a commentary on a Trump and post-Trump, post-January 6th world, where it is important to stand up at every opportunity and point out what is flat-out wrong and divisive at a time when we can ill afford it. It may be true that a Southern general like Curtis might have been more conciliatory like the original text showed, but in this case, I hardly mind that this newer version of Curtis speaks more with the mouth of the author. Characterization is important, but even more is the message we leave the audience especially in this day and age where audiences can assume that anything a prominent character says is what the author believes. I've deliberated with myself multiple times in the past if I believe that stories and art should be left as they were for posterity and remain as representations of what that artist felt and tried to communicate at that particular point in their lives. And while there are some facets to that concept which have something to them. Over time, I've concluded that, at least in the case of storytelling media, it should be entirely within the right of each storyteller to be able to adjust their own tales. Stories 
change and evolve over time. That's just how it has always been throughout human history. If the person who tells that story has the capacity to deliver it to new audiences in a way that reflects evolving sensibilities and personal judgments, whether social or personal to the author, then that shouldn't be stymied. Also, heck, there's like so many examples of director's cuts and second editions and what have you. It absolutely has so much precedent. So I think it's definitely a weird hangover of mine I once had, which, appropriate to the subject of conversation, I've since changed my own stance on. Obviously, there is a little bit of a generational difference between the two of us. But mm. when I think back on a different time, and by a different time, I also mean to a certain extent when I was younger and it didn't feel like there was as much in the world that I actually had to worry about. The era that we live in now, it feels more important than ever that the media that we put out into the world is very aware of what's going out into the world, that people mm. who create even fiction meant to entertain has to be aware that politics are unavoidable from the content that we create and mm -hmm. that claiming otherwise is not only in some ways ignorant, it's dangerously so. That yeah. the, the idea of believing that you can keep opinion and entertainment separate is... Mm foolish we can keep these separate when nothing is at stake but we live mm. in a world where it feels like everything is at stake everything is important mm. we need to go forward into the world without blinders e even within the content that we use to take us out of the world a little bit and in this case particularly where the politics is baked into every part of it mm. um, making sure that you're writing something that puts the right stuff out into the world and is true to how you are mm. one can even consider it important to one's own self-esteem regardless mm. of how anyone else will yeah. interpret it you know yeah it's 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 taking responsibility for what you put out there, which is honestly a philosophy and practice that I think really should be encouraged and like more prevalent in a post-digital age. It's just something that there is, I think, a lot of the worst evolutions of humanity over the last 30 years has been with this lack of contextualization or internalization of what the things we put out there actually do and can do and can affect on a personal and wider level. If it's a case of I have this book that isn't just something that I put out and then it was never to be sort of engaged with again. It's something that like continue, like here we are talking about it now, 2021, and it continues to be relevant. That means that as much as Alex put it out in, I forget the year that Arlington originally released, but as much as it was 
something that he produced and put out then he is continuing to put out new century like and i don't just mean that he's producing new installments of it it is as a whole something that he puts his back into so it's an act of taking responsibility for the things that are in our own name if that makes sense which i think is entirely within the purview of anyone who does any sort of public engagement of some kind whether it's artistic or just anything written or recorded it's the way we navigate life in the 21st century it was fully released because i have this Mm. i have this piece of spreadsheet that alex shared with me a million years ago that constantly becomes important because there's so many dates and numbers and significant details in here that I couldn't possibly keep it straight in my own head. Mm. But it was written over the first half of 2016 and was released in September of that year. In fact, just before, within like 90 days of the election that put Trump into power. Mm. I don't feel like cheering that over any further, so... Yeah. I, I'm just like, gonna... I'm, I'm spitting that out. Yeah, just, like... Just <laughs> take a bite and, like... You know it, You know what it is? If Have you ever seen Black Books? I haven't, actually. I'm familiar well, of it as okay. a thing, yeah. Well, you know what? I know Alex has, so essentially my reaction to that is just that moment where uh, Dylan Moran's character, Bernard Black, takes a bite out of a like, slice of toast with some jam on it, and it's like gone off where it's bad. It's like, uh, 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 tosses the jam toast up to the ceiling and it sticks to the ceiling out of sight. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, that's yeah. having thrown the like off like thing and it's stuck off site to uh, the ceiling where it will drop down at an inconvenient moment. Let's move on. Yeah. There are two other moments where the text was changed, but. The greater significance here is that because I was working with an old copy of Arlington, that meant that as I was going forward and comparing the remastered audio with the text that I had already had, I was noticing less of a change and more of an absence of what had been previously there. And I'm going to go on to um, use some of Alex's actual words when I asked him about it, because Mm. as always the man has a talent with words and I feel like hearing it in his own voice is more enlightening than anything I would have to say about it. After the speech that I just referenced with the new additions, there was a side conversation, an anecdote removed from the text about the reason why this outpouring of emotion in his speech to the rioters and the cops why that all came about was that he was pissed about the absence of a waffle cart and its proprietor um, feeling a desire for her safety at first i thought that the change was to give the new text more center stage given the importance of changing the content that he had put into it five years ago But Mm. what Alex had to say is that he felt being concerned over a Belgian woman's pastries was the widest of takes. Uh, 
given the clear and present danger to black people taking place right in front of them. He goes on to say, in the original text, Curtis proceeds to tell the black people rioting because they're being housed right next to the fucking Klan that this is a transient cause. I was actively angry with myself. When I wrote the original speech, I was imagining Curtis bellowing at white looters, trying to keep the black writers separate and not speaking to them directly. But I decided to turn that back around and acknowledge it so that I could at least through Curtis express, I get it. I see you. Yeah, that feels like a positive and necessary change. And I don't really have anything to add to it because like we've talked a lot about the principle of the change, but I think mm-hmm. here with this, the specifics of what was changed, this is for the best. I think it creates a focus to what is being said here as mm. like what you felt at first. I still think that that is absolutely correct. And what Alex feels like was taken out was just not necessary. And maybe like, even like, aggravating like mm-hmm. he felt aggravated by his own words and while i wouldn't be as intense about it i i get it so it's sometimes you look at like edits and things like that uh, for cut scenes and you go like oh why was this scene cut and then you look at others and you go oh yeah no this was the right call and mm-hmm. this is one of those times it's the right call yeah uh the other part that was removed Um, was a conversation between Curtis and Frank Butler Mm. about incentive that Curtis was providing in regards to saying, you know, if you if you turned up in defense of the government, then I'm offering a chance to receive a medal of bravery and recognition of your sacrifice. And the conversation that happened was that Frank suggested that people might falsely claim those medals And Curtis responded that by making the offer, he made the approval of the president something to be desired, that people like to be told, well done. When I asked Alex about the removal of that part as well, he said that he felt in retrospect it was antithetical to what people really want, which is change. There is, I I understand the idea of it, that in a different time, recognition might be significant but when everything with everything else that's going on people have heard enough about thoughts and prayers and have heard enough about pretty words about politicians recognizing what's going on and agreeing that something needs to be done at this point people just want the action they don't want mm-hmm. the word. they don't believe the words anymore yeah. words by themselves are not enough yes sentiment is meaningless without some sort of action behind it and what we're talking about here isn't even just people being tired of it in politics over the last year the last several years but the last year in particular there has been a deluge of news in the video games industry of seriously heinous shit going on behind the scenes in terms of mistreatment of employees. And all these big game companies are trying to get back control of the narrative, claiming that they are hearing what people are saying and will make changes. 
But at this point, I don't have time for any of it. Shut up about needing to make change and just change. Now. I don't care about anything mealy-mouthed PR people have to say, and I am only paying attention to actions. Because those actions, or often lack of actions, are deafening in comparison. It fits with the goal of drawing this incident to a definitive stop. There's no venerating even the people who you could argue force on our protagonist's side, and there's a somewhat reluctant relinquishing of pursuing and enacting justice against the most reprehensible instigators and perpetrators of the senseless violence of the riot. The single thing about this speech and this scene, which all who witness it are conveyed is, this stops. It is firm, blunt, and direct. It has a human approachability to it, which is why Curtis is as much of an asset as he is to this government, but he is 100% through this speech just creating something very, like, there is no sort of room for discussion or debate on this because it is a fact. If you are still here when the rest of the reinforcements roll up, if you're still doing this shit, you are going to be gunned down. What you're doing now, if it was up to me, like you would be tried, you would be held accountable for this. But what I'm telling you, reconciling both of this, is that this stops. It's a peaceful resolution, but it is absolutely with a authority behind it, which makes the scene have a power to it. One could look at it as being like the darker reflection of what Annie was trying to do when she made the offer to Carl and Virgil back on Elkview Road. You know, that she was far more genial about it in terms of Mm. saying this is a better option. And Mm. in Curtis's case, he is literally threatening them with death but saying, hey, if you just left, wouldn't that be a better option? Aren't we both agreed that it it would be better to stop fighting and to go back and focus Mm -hmm. on your own concerns rather than me having to gun you down? What his words are there to do is to kind of shine a light on their actions because it's the and what the consequences of their actions will be because it's not just that they will die. It's that your name will be engraved Mm. with your actions here tonight, that people will know that this was your end. Mm. Is that really what you fucking want? There are some people in that group that will have been like, you know, that is kind of what they were there for. But like, if the riot is just like this sea of sort of intensity and getting carried away with all of this, this is just a thing of like, okay, Hold the fuck on. Is this really, literally, the hill you want to die on? (laughs) It is. That is that is absolutely like it is the most literal version of this. Is like Curtis just gets onto a loudspeaker and says, like, hear what I'm telling you. I want to bring this to a more like definitive end that feels just, but 
I am instead going to just ask you like this most simple and the human emotive question. Do you want to die on this hill? And that's it. Mm. Imagine how much different January 6th would have been if General Curtis was present. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, like a steam heart, like just <laughs> rocking up. Like, I, let's not go down the road of like, yeah, imagine how things would be if like several of the facets of New Century were present. It's not even like in our history of the 19th century, it's in our 21st century. This is, this is why this series feels as modern as it does, despite being an alternate history series. It is absolutely shaped by our sort of collective processing of the decades we live in. The Thus, fact that art is imitating life is imitating mm, art is yeah. an unfortunate side effect of everything else. And yes. we don't want it to be this way. No. We want the fiction to stay fictional and we want mm. the reality to be far more logical and less completely batshit ridiculous yeah. but we can't really do much about that on a one-to-one mm. personal level so all we can mm. do is just sort of look at it and go fucking hell <laughs> that's that's pretty much it it's just like okay are we looking at fiction here or the news reports that's where we're left at at the end of this mm. yeah well I don't feel like there's much more to say about, uh, mm. I mean, based on what the topics that I already outlined for this, oh. I also feel like we're coming a little bit out of steam here, but I'm sorry. Mm. Were you, did you just have a, an additional thought? I, I had one question just sort mm. of logistics wise, cause there's a single like sentence explaining it, but this bunch of chapters ends with the appearance of the manticore and it's like, oh shit, oh shit, like, Thomas is up on the roof, he's mm -hmm. in danger. So what was the reason that Thomas was, had to get on that roof? Like, it says to, so that he could survey the situation. Well, no, this was part of, Harry basically ordered him out of Steamheart, because, because it felt like that would be the focus of the mob's attention if things went south. Exactly. And even though she is the most experienced person, this is very literally Steamheart's trial by fire. And mm. she doesn't get no. It's not like they've tested to see what would happen if it was overrun on all signs by a mob. They don't mm. know yet the durability of the armor. They mm. don't know what the potential strength of a mob contribute. Mm. And more significantly, if thomas was trapped inside regardless of whether or not they're able to breach Steamheart or not it would be very difficult for him to do the necessary work that he would need to do in order to continue quelling the chaos and everything like that so mm. it was her idea look let's get you to a position where you can't be easily laid siege to it just so happens that narratively that also means that he is now a prime target for Brayoth and Seth. Mm. And that's because... not a spoiler because wherever the Manticore goes, so too does Seth. We kind yeah. of know that at this point. Mm. But to a certain extent, it almost 
even though it's narratively useful, one has to wonder what would have happened if Seth had decided, oh, that's where Arlington is. I'm going to try and lay siege to that. Mm. We don't know how Seth yeah. and the Manticore would do up against Steamheart yet, let alone her concerns about uh, the strength of the mob. Yeah, no, that's that's kind of it, is that, like, we we put... I, I sort of see now why, like, the logic of, like, how Thomas ends up on the roof, and you get the feeling that Harry surmises the situation, puts him, uh, Thomas in the best place to be safe from the current threat, which is, mm. of, like, the human threat, which is what this whole situation has been built around dealing with mm -hmm. and Seth and Brayoth they do exactly what they have been doing throughout this book they circumvent they, they flip the script they are literally flying above on another level to everything <laughs> going down on down below yeah. so this is why it means that okay we're putting Thomas in like the best place where he's inaccessible to the current threat and Seth says oh yes what was that about the current threat? Well, oh god so all of a sudden we have a darker uh, reflection of the word where we're going we don't need roads <laughs> <laughs> yep that's absolutely it I think this is the point where we have to leave off because like this is a dramatic tense moment yeah I, my words, it is late in the evening. I think that this is the point at which we stop. Yeah, I think we'll talk a little bit more about the topic that you just brought up in regards to when we see Chapter 23 play out. Mm. Um, because I have been thinking a little bit about that very subject and how in some ways, yes, it leaves Thomas vulnerable, but I also think it provides for uh, an important turning point in regards to that whole thing. Mm. So we, we it, should talk about we, it as soon as everybody else has yeah. the relevant context. Yeah. So we don't know what's about to come up. We have worries and concerns, but we can't really talk about this logistics of this until we see what the like what the logistics are in service of. Yeah, exactly. So. Another great conversation. Yes. But all the rest is for next time. And we'll see you on that next trip through the wind door. Take care. It's early Sunday morning and I'm beat. I cram to get this out of the door and I don't have anything pithy or fun to say. But that doesn't mean we can't end on a fun note. Until next time, this is The Band Fun with Carry On. Well, I woke up to the sound of silence of cars We're cutting like knives in a fist fight And I found you with a bottle of wine, your head in the curtains, and heart like the 4th of July. 
You swore and said we are not, we are not shining stars. This I know, I never said we are. Though I've never been through hell like that, I've closed enough windows to know you can never look back. If you're lost in a zone, or you're sinking like a stone, carry on. May your past be the sound of your feet upon the ground. Carry on. Carry on. Carry on. This is the uh, bedroom where uh, all of the magic happens, which is sleep. Um, I can definitely say that sleep is magical, and sometimes yes. necessarily so. Absolutely. Um, it's magic that it happens at all, is the uh, experience of most people in our day and age, I think. 
It's it's okay if I'm not making sense. I haven't had the coffee yet. That'll kick in. <laughs> well, it won't necessarily mean that you make sense. It'll just mean that you'll be talking about it faster. Like okay, well that, <laughs> that's it. Is that like the coffee doesn't necessarily help me construct my thoughts. It just means I'm more enthusiastic about them, which is really all that's required for an entertaining show. Mm-hmm. We have fish now. Um, yes. Hmm. Not but, not not fish that communicate electrically, but still mm, fish. Yeah, you know, like nobody's perfect. Um, <laughs> <laughs> electric, electric communication is not a requirement. It's just a, but a it's fascinating the, field of study, apparently, isn't it? It's the wave of the future. <laughs> it is the electric wave of the future, I believe. <laughs> yes. All of a sudden, I'm just suddenly picturing people like, uh, "Hello, blub. Who is this? Holy shit! The fish are." Co- Figured out how to how to communicate, send their signals to the internet. Uh. <laughs> Bring me flakes. Bring flakes. <laughs> now, fish are well. Fish are very elemental, but I can't imagine fish are as demanding as cats would be, and everything like that. Mm, also, well, if you have fish, then it's probably not a good idea to also have cats. No, it's. I I don't think that apple is uh, is a risk factor in any of the fish getting eaten. He would have to be very hungry and suddenly take up swimming. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would be know. I would be amazed to see that. I'm not sure I would even be mad. I would just be amazed. <laughs> that reminds me that I wanted to. What was the one that I referenced? That I found interesting. Your voice has a very sort of intimate, gravelly, sexy quality to it right now. (laughs) Oh, for fuck's sake. Please don't give Maureen ammo that she's going to needle me about later, being like, do I need to worry about Toby? Uh... (laughs) ASMR through the window. Late night edition. And the very next book we're going to be covering is Arlington, and it feels like... That's the one we're covering now. Arlington (laughs) is the one we're finishing, Greg. Yeah, well, no, I'm just saying is that... Oh, yes, I'm sorry. (laughs) Wow, okay, well, we got our own outtake going on there right now. Excellent. It's Um, fine. It's fine. We're ahead of schedule. Yeah, exactly. This is Poets of New Century with Toby Youngis. <laughs> right, no, I have to repeat that. I changed my name. 